welcome back to the Oral Mess Podcast. This week's guest is Jane Sheldon. Jane is a singer-songwriter from the West Coast. Join us as we discuss a variety of musical topics, and be sure to check out our video version on YouTube. Hello, and welcome back to the Oral Mess Podcast. Today, I'm joined by singer, songwriter, and multi-instrumentalist Jane Sheldon. Hi, Jane. Hi, Chad. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, tell my my five viewers and my three listeners <laughs> <laughs> all about you. Um, well, I think you're going to have six or seven because I at the coffee shop up by my house, I told them I was on this podcast and I said, oh, it's the, I met him because he does these amazing memes of Steely Dan. And they're like, what is it? And they followed you on Instagram. So nice. one more follower. Excellent. Uh, yeah, but my name is Jane Sheldon, and I, uh, I'm a, like you said, a songwriter, singer. Uh, I play many instruments, not all of them fabulously, but I, you know, have fun. Um, I live in Los Angeles, California, and um, yeah, I have a nine-year-old son who is amazing and taking up a lot of time in the best way. <laughs> That's a great age. It's the best, and he was actually able to come. It was the first time he was able to come to a show of mine because I play at bars, you know, and, and right. they're late, and whatever. So he was able to come to the, the, the show that I just did at the Troubadour, and it was very sweet because he was right up at the front, and um, that was pretty that was pretty sweet to have. That's there. amazing. So let's yeah. talk about the Troubadour show. When, when I saw that you were performing there, I was just blown away. I mean, that place, as you know, just has a wild history. You know, I mean, it was sort of one of the places to play in L.A. in the, the 60s and 70s. And really, even in the 80s, the, the hair bands kind of took over. So right. they did. They yeah, did. What was, what was the experience like playing there? What was it like being on that stage? Well, it was really... A, an, an incredible place. I mean, I played a lot of I've played a lot of places, but it, you could just feel the. I don't think it's really been touched since they opened it. Um, and you could just, you, you know, it's a, this just big, beautiful wooden room, and you could just feel the, uh, all of the history in there, and it sounds great. It really sounds great. It is a great sounding room, um, and everybody who's played there is like, oh, it's just, it's just it just sounds so good up there and it really it really did it was it was a lot of fun to be there that's awesome i took some time and i went through the troubadours website um because you know i think i was just saying this to you before we started recording um there is just so much that has happened there and so many bands either played legendary shows there or got their start there so they had this whole great page of like you know sort of a timeline and, and history of of the club so um, I figured it'd be fun to go through some of the the highlights from the 70s and, and we can talk about some of the people that are mentioned. Yeah, I'd love that. Great. So starting in 1970, apparently Don Henley and Glenn Fry from the Eagles met for the first time in the bar at the Troubadour. Incredible. <laughs> I don't know that. I didn't know that either. You know, I think that's, that's fascinating. I don't know if it's before the Eagles really got started or, I mean, obviously before they, they you know, they meeting for the first time, but I mean, I'm not sure like where in their careers they were at that time. Well, I, I think, and I could be wrong, but I think that they were both, they both ended up backing up Linda Ronstadt. Right. Was the history of the Eagles, right? Like they started as, they were just players for Linda and then they decided to go, you know, let's, let's do our thing. Right. But I didn't uh, know that they met in that, in that bar. Yeah, well, according to their website, that's I guess cool. that's, that's a point of pride. So that's, that's pretty cool. Uh, really an, cool. An, another interesting one, and I, I think I knew about this one, is um, Zeppelin played a, a monster show at the LA Forum that same year. Mm-hmm. And I guess um, after the show, they all ended up at the Troubadour, and they got on stage with Fairport Convention and just had this massive jam session for three hours. <laughs> That's an interesting uh, hybrid. I wouldn't have put that those those two groups together, but that sounds that's great. Yeah, and they they crossed over on, um, you know, I'm not sure, Robert Plant apparently was a huge Fairport Convention fan, and I know in uh, the Battle of Evermore that Sandy Denny on some of the backing vocals, right? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. But I just can't imagine, you know, I mean, even in 1970, Zeppelin was huge. Just just being there to see Fairport Convention, and all of a sudden, like you know, Plant Page 
bottom <laughs> all jealous. <laughs> oh they all just kind of wander in and they're like, okay, we're just going to go take the stage and, and you yeah. know, have this, this jam session. That was amazing. Yeah. I love, I love that when, you know, very, very successful musicians will just get up and play anywhere. You know, it's cool. Definitely. All right. So moving on to 1971, um, Again, a, a meeting at the Troubadour that, that was significant for the future of music. Um, Carly Simon met James Taylor mm. for the first time. Um, and they, of course, got married later and had this great, you know, musical history between the two of them. So, Indeed. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. A little bit of a volatile pairing, I think. <laughs> yeah, but some for good sure. songs came out of that. <laughs> yes. I love Carly Simon. She Me too. Fantastic. She's she's a. I think she's a very underrated songwriter. I agree. Um, what are your thoughts about James Taylor? I mean, he's he's obviously a legend, but he's not one of my favorites. I'm not going to lie. Not, I got to tell you, you know, I respect I respect him. I think he's not somebody I ever seek out to listen to. Um, uh, he's obviously a great guitar player and. Um, Fire and Rain is a beautifully, you know, it's a classic. And there's just something about his music that doesn't make me, it doesn't draw, it's not compelling to me in the same way as other artists of that era were. Um, So I'm going to, I'm going to choose Carly Simon. (laughs) Arifka by (laughs) my Me too. Carly Simon. (laughs) Team Carly all the way. Team Carly. Nice. All right, so moving on to 1975, Miles Davis records his Live at the Troubadour album. Yeah. Um, I have to say I'm not super familiar with that. I'm obviously a big Miles fan, but it's one of the albums that I just haven't listened to a whole lot. I mean, I've heard it, um, but now I'm going to have to go back and, and revisit it. Yeah, I've never, I haven't heard that record either. I bet that's, yeah, that would have been, that would have been a cool kind of time travel-y thing, right? You can time travel anywhere, go to that show. Oh, I would love to be yeah. at that show. Are you kidding? Yeah. <laughs> um, and 70s miles, right? Like mid 70s miles. So it's like, you know, um, when did it, post bitches brew, but like before he got into all the weird stuff in the 80s. So I think it might have been a good. Right. I'll have to go check the track listing and see what's on there. Yeah. Um, all right. 1979, another underrated, I think, singer songwriter, Ricky Lee Jones, releases mm-hmm. Chuck E's In Love, which mm-hmm. apparently she wrote about musician and former Troubadour employee Chuck E. Weiss. So there's a connection there. I didn't. I, I didn't know he was connected to the Troubadour at all. Interesting. Yeah, neither did I. Uh, yeah. I guess you know he must have worked there around that time. Um, and then also in 1979, um, kind of coming back full circle to the Eagles, they released the song "Sad Cafe," which was written about the Troubadour. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> didn't know, didn't know that either. Didn't know that either. I but. Should, I didn't, I didn't check their website before I played there. I should have said this is this is all news. This this cool. Me too. And again, like I, I knew it had a, a great history. I knew about a lot of things. Like you know, Lenny Bruce, I think, was the, the first person that that you know was sort of of notoriety there. But um, all these other things, I just had no clue. So it was fun, it was yeah. fun learning about that today. That's that is good. That's good history. Good trivia. And then well, we can. I, it was. Yeah. I think it, several years ago it was on the verge of closing. Really. Yeah. It was. It came. It came close, and I'm not sure how it got salvaged, but think, thankfully it did. It's an important. It's an important venue to keep alive, for sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, which brings us to the 80s. And I think we can just yeah. skip over that and just say that the hair <laughs> bands took over, right? That that whole thing. Um, but, you know, most notably, I think Metallica and Guns N' Roses played yeah. some of their first, you know, shows there. No hate to, to hair metal, by the way. You know, I was into it for a while. So speaking of 80s, I guess it would have been... So I was born in 82 and my brother is 10 years older than I am. He's a musician and he used to play those spots on the strip like Club Lingerie and Gazaris. And so I was a kid. I couldn't go to the shows. My parents were very, very supportive. And so we would go and stand outside those clubs. And I remember being, you know, seven years old and being outside of like Club Lingerie and Gazaris and just like the hair and the whole thing, you know. Pretty funny memory. Oh, that's amazing. Another yeah. time travel moment would have been like just the sunset strip in the eighties, that that whole scene, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, just, 
Yeah, but I mean, even just as as, as an adult, just being there, you know, as oh, a fly, fly on the wall kind of thing, like crazy. Crazy. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I, I, we could keep going. But one one last entry that, that I had noted um, in 1991, um, Pearl Jam, who had been performing under the name Mookie Blaylock up until that point, actually played their first show <laughs> as Pearl Jam at the Troubadour. Wasn't Mookie Blaylock, wasn't he, wasn't that a, like a, some kind of sports player, right? Yeah, what, he was a what, basketball player. Basketball player. Okay. Love it. For what team? I don't know. I'm not a sports yeah. fan. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Man. So good. My, my knowledge of sports is, is really around how it ties into music and, and other things, but yeah. Are you going to watch the Super Bowl? Well, that I watch every year. Yeah. So uh, my wife and my daughter, who's who's 17, and I, we have fun with it every year. We we make boxes and we do all the side bets, like, you know, how long is the national anthem going to be? Is it going to be less than or greater than two minutes? And, you know, what yeah. color is the Gatorade going to be at the end? We, we do all that stuff. So we, we make a, a fun night out of it. Is your daughter into Taylor Swift? Not really. Um, yeah, she's got a really great taste in music. Not to say that Taylor Swift isn't great taste, but um, she's just into so many things. But Taylor's just something that never really resonated with her as, as much, I don't think. Okay, so she's not caught up in the whole national, national consciousness. <laughs> Taylor, gonna make it to the Super Bowl. Does she have enough time? Can she get on the plane at 10? <laughs> I find it ama- it's so fun. It's so funny to me. that how oh, It's great. are. And I love how much of an uproar it is and how people are just getting so upset or happy about it on the other side of things. You know, it's it's great. Very polarizing. It's it is. pretty un- unbelievable. I have a feeling some of the side bet stuff this year is going to be all around, all about Taylor. You know, what time is she going to get there? How many times are we going to see her on screen? Is she going to run on the field if they win? Like all that yeah. kind of stuff. So Yes and yes and yes. Yeah. Yeah, that'll be great. Yeah. Um so let's talk about your music, which, um, you know, before, obviously, before we met on Instagram, um, I wasn't really aware of, of your music. And now I am. And I have to say, I love it. I, I went back and listened to your first EP. Um, I listened to your recent um, EP of covers, which I love the title, Somebody Else's Favorite Song. Which you, is get, obvious. you get the reference. Of course, it's FM. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know what's so funny is very few people get that reference um i guess they're just you know they're not in the in the steely dan world like you and i are but <laughs> i'm glad you picked up on that and i don't consider fm to be like a deep cut by any means but i agree there are a surprising number of people who even really like steely dan and just don't know that song because it was never released really it was a single and it was only on the greatest hits albums and you know it just sort of didn't hit the consciousness i guess for for some folks but yeah, immediately saw that and loved it. And um, when no I saw Bad Sneakers, all. that's right, no static <laughs> at all. Uh, when I saw Bad Sneakers um, on your EP, I got excited. And um, talk to me a bit about how you decided to record that. And, um, you know, the arrangement is phenomenal. I really like what you did with it. Thanks. Yeah, so um, I started collaborating with the person who produced it. His name's Stevie Black. And he's an incredible string arranger by trade. And he's worked with, you know, Miley and Madonna and tons and tons of people. Um, And so he and I started working together and we've written some songs. And then I was like, you know, I just kind of want to do it. I just want to do an EP of covers and I really want to uh, fuck them up. (laughs) You know, like, (laughs) I want to just like, let's do them so different than the original and just have fun and um it was sort of started as a uh, over covid you know so we'd get together mm. in masks and where we could and just kind of it took it took you know a good long time because there were it was over isolation mostly but um bad sneakers i had you know i just was going through the steely dan songbook and i have i can't remember it's the it's it's uh, the sheet music of the first seven records Right. And so I would just sit at the piano and play through the songs. And um, I sort of had the bare bones piano idea. And, and it was a little bit faster. And Stevie was like, let's slow it down. And we slowed it down. And we, um, yeah, we just was, wanted it to be very kind of simple piano, string quartet. Um, and sort of take it to a different emotional place than the original does um and yeah I, i'm really proud of how that one turned out that might be my favorite off of that record i it just I, I think i think it 
I'm, I'm very proud of that one. As you should be. It's it's great. And I love, and, and the strings are so great because like you said, it sort of sets the mood and, and it gives it a whole different vibe. Um, and most notably, you know, Steely Dan didn't really use strings in any of their recorded songs, right? I think Through With Buzz is the only one that has strings. There's, I think there's one more. I don't remember which track it is, but yes, Through With Buzz is an incredible string arrangement. I can't remember that. He's a famous string arranger. I can't remember his name, but um, yeah, it's interesting. I'd like to, if I ever get to talk to Fagan, I'd like to ask him his why you know why didn't they why didn't they use more strings i guess they they didn't have to uh, yeah that oh that that's a good way of putting it they didn't have to um they did do some string arrangements for other artists which was funny like you know some of the early brill building stuff and they, they were you know brought in to do arrangements for jay and the americans right. and, and some of the other bands and stuff that they didn't necessarily record even even not on their own songs but you know, how do you do horn and string arrangements all that time and then just not bring it into your own music? I guess, it, like you said, they just didn't have to because everything else was so great. Was it cooled down? I mean, they certainly used horns. Um, but yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting choice that they really did not go there. And I love a good string section on a, on oh, a rock track. Me too. Yeah. So keeping that Steely Dan connection alive with the recording process, uh, Lenise Bent, hello. Yeah. <laughs> How did that happen? So Lenise and Stevie, the producer, go way back. And um, it just was a sort of a, a, a natural idea of like, you know what? Let's bring, let's get, let's see if Lenise wants to mix this one. And so Stevie sent her a rough and she loved it. And she said, yes, yes, yes. And she put her magic on it. And she had great ideas of like, you know, when to bring in the violin and when to pull it out. And she really brought it to a whole, a whole new level. And she's, and she's such a cool person. Yes. She had a lot of stories, which I won't share, but um, (laughs) (laughs) Um, it was special to work with her and have her on this as this, you know, full circle Steely Dan uh, moment. Amazing. Um, I'm lucky enough that she followed my stupid meme page on Instagram. And she's liked a few things. And every time she does, I'm I'm like, I get giddy. I laugh. I'm like, oh, the nice pet liked my my meme. This is awesome. You know, like it just makes my whole day. Um, Yeah. Yeah, super cool. No, she's cool. She's really got, um, she's, she's, She's got quite a resume of who she's worked with, and she doesn't have any airs about her either. She's a really, really cool person. I like her a lot. That's great. Yeah. So the other song that stood out on the the EP is the uh, I Want You to Want Me, which, you know, goes in a completely different direction than the original. Um, Love it. You know, how did you decide to take this sort of, I don't want to say bubblegum pop, but like, you know, Cheap Trick was so upbeat and peppy and happy for for most of their their hits in the 70s and you know i would never think of that song in a minor key really slowed down with the string section like you made it into sort of a a sad love song right as opposed to like uh yeah i guess which which it was originally i guess but but the 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 music sort of masks that that feeling that you get from the lyrics right unless you really overanalyze it and i never had i guess and then when i heard your version i was like wow that's not a happy song (laughs) Yeah, I, I um, I think I said when I posted it. I, I don't know if, if if it's still up there, but I think I said you know most some songs like people are sad. You just have to get them alone in a room, <laughs> you know. And that song is like you start. I, I I just I heard it and I was like I started listening to the lyrics. And it's a really sad song, you know. Um, I want you to want me. I want you to need me. I'd love you to love me. It, it's a song of longing and mourning and, and wanting. And so I just kind of just sat with it at the piano again. And um, yeah, it just came to me as a totally different idea of let's, you know, let's make this a, a song of unrequited love, a piano string quartet, just simple. It was August, actually. It was like this August thing. Once I started doing it, I was like, this is how this song should be. (laughs) (laughs) Not to say that the original is, I mean, the original is great. It's so so fun and poppy. And, you know, immediately it comes on and you start start shaking your body and bopping. And that's that's a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. 
And when just, you hear your version, you sit and cry. I love it. Thanks. Uh, but that was that was a fun one. To, his strings too on that, I think, are so so gorgeous. Yeah. Oh yeah, the strings are, are fantastic. Um, so let's just sort of maybe stay in the, in the Celia Dan world for a bit. So yeah. I know just from reading your bio on your website and stuff that, you know, your dad played you a lot of music growing up as, as did mine. Although my dad was really more into older classic stuff and, and not necessarily rock and roll as much. Um, he was a little older. So, um, I, I got a completely different sort of world growing up between his music. And then my mom came up in, in sort of the, the same era, but then my brother and sister who were, uh, 11 and 13 years older than me, uh, yeah. kind of like your brother. So yeah. I got this whole sort of generational leap of music growing up, um, which sort of shaped my musical taste. Um, but what are your earliest memories of hearing, hearing Steely Dan? What initially attracted you to them? What are some of your favorite songs? Let's, let's, let's do that. I can tell you exactly <laughs> what happened to me with Steely Dan. So uh, yes, like you, my, um, my father was, uh, musical my brother was 10 years older and so there was a lot of more sophisticated stuff playing in the house and my dad was a big steely dan fan and i it was on in the house and i you know it was like the, it was just sort of a background thing and then i started to drive when i was 16 my parents had a ford taurus and it had a cassette it had a cassette deck and i i was driving around by myself in santa monica where i grew up and um my dad had left a cassette of Katie Lyde in the tape deck. And so I was like, oh, I was like, all right, I should give this a shot. And at that and at that time I was, you know, I started playing guitar. I think I was maybe 13. And I was into Nirvana, you know, and sort of the bands of that time, whole and I learned how to play guitar just listening to those records and just figuring out the bar chords and stuff. So sure. I had that under my belt. Um and uh, I so I was driving around and this Katie Lyde was in the tape deck and I was like I'm gonna I'm 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 gonna just give this a go and I turned it on and it was set to Daddy Don't Live in that in that New York City anymore was the track that it was on and I just hadn't heard anything like that song before you know that and the guitar lick was so cool oh, yeah. I was like, what is this I don't know what this is but I really like it. You know, it got me immediately. And so I think I I replayed, rewinded, I rewound that song a few times. And then I started listening to that record and I was blown away by those songs. Um, And I just was like, okay, give me more, give me more. Dad, I need more. (laughs) I was in after that. I was like, I need more, I need more, I need more. Uh, And I think the next record I went to was Pretzel Logic. Okay. Um, and then I just just was all in from right. that moment. So sixteen on, sixteen maybe seventeen. Sixteen, seventeen on was it was all about Steely Dan. And I still have never, uh, I, I I never get sick of those records. I always go back to them and hear something new, and something will catch my you know I'll hear a lyric differently. Or, or a guitar phrase or piano, you know, just it's a, it really just keeps on giving. They do. Th- those albums are, you nailed it. I mean, like even still, I'll listen to stuff and, and hear something I hadn't heard before or just some phrase or something will hit me a different way. Um, and I do a lot of listening in the car, which is not the best mm-hmm environment to hear all the nuance in music so recently i've been trying to listen with headphones you know and like really focus um just to kind of again revisit some of the the songs that i love and just and hear new things and i still do (laughs) you know it's it's crazy it's crazy it's um it's it's probably you know the the best recorded music of all time just in terms of sonically how it sounds and the all of the the nuances that in the time and the energy and the production and the money and that just, you know, I mean, records like that will never be made again. Right. That's yeah. true. And it's funny that you had Katie Lyde as your first exposure. I think mine was as a kid, I had a little record player, one of the old seventies models that was like a little suitcase that opened up and that, yeah, you know, yeah. right. Um, and my sister who worked in radio um, would always give me um, whatever, records that you know she got as promos and you know they didn't want or they had duplicates of or what have you so i remember one of my earliest 
memories of playing my own records on that record player was Josie by Steely Dan. I don't think it was in 77 when it came out. It might have been a few years after, so I was probably seven or eight years old. But um, even at seven, eight years old, that song just grabbed me, the the guitars and, and the drums and just the rhythm and the words that I had no idea what the hell they were talking about as a kid. <laughs> you know what I mean? Shine up the battle apple. That's Hooters. Yeah, right. Exactly. What the hell is a battle apple? Joe, Joe would you I love to scrap it, it, it It's a made-up word, but it, it just, okay. you know, why not, right? Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I think um, Asia was in, in the zeitgeist for, at, at that time and Gaucho. So I think I, I picked some of that up again just from, you know, mm-hmm. my, my sister and from hearing it on the radio. Hey 19 was a current, you know, when I was that age. Um, and kind of didn't really get the bug for steely dan until i was probably like you somewhere in my mid to late teens and katie lied was kind of the gateway drum for me um i heard dr Wu, and um that just blew me away you know i i used to play saxophone so the sax solo and that is just aces and um you know it, it sort of led me to sort of be like okay let me listen to the rest of this album and, and see what other songs i like on it and i love the whole thing and like you i kind of then went you know i i knew of asia and gaucho like i said so i, I went back and, and explored those further um and then went backwards and did pretzel logic and then you know the first two albums and, and everything else and and since then it's just been you know in regular rotation yeah yeah it, it, does your family partake in your steely dan love unfortunately no um i'm not gonna i'm not gonna say my wife's a hater um but you know every once in a while she's like dude can you listen to something else you know um like no i really can't (laughs) i do the funny thing is i do i listen to so much other stuff i mean you know it's just i I think that my my focus the last few years again has has been steely dan i'm in that phase right now uh my daughter it's funny. She isn't really into them yet. I'm, I'm hoping to just sort of, you know, subvert her and, and make her a Steely Dan fan. Um, mm-hmm. But I was playing stuff um, in the living room, you know, a while back. And I think she thinks she doesn't know a lot of Steely Dan songs, but songs were coming on. And she was like, I know that song. I know that song. So I was like, OK, good. At least at least she knows it and can recognize it. So that makes me happy. Yeah. It sort of creeped into the subconscious and then. Maybe later on in her life, she'll be like, you know what? I'm, I, I want that. I'm going to listen to that again. Yeah, I and think like she will. Foundation and then, yeah. I think she will. So what are your, besides, um, you know, Daddy Don't Live in that New York City No More, which I love that you put that on the playlist that you made for me. And we'll talk about the playlist in a bit. Um, some other standout tracks for you. Like, I know people ask me that all the time because, you know, they, they think I'm a huge Daily Dan nerd and I am, but I don't have a permanent I don't like to rank things anyway, but I don't really have a permanent top list. It's just yeah. stuff, the stuff that I'm into right now, right? Like there's the, the Steely Dan catalog kind of revolves through my my uh, listening habits, I guess. I always say the best, the, my, my favorite song, Steely Dan song is the one that I'm listening to. <laughs> <laughs> right. Whatever one I'm listening to. Sure. Um, but you know what? You know what? Which song I've been sort of going, well, I love Pixelate. I feel like that's yeah. sort of a deeper cut that people don't, you know, the last two records sort of get dismissed, I think, by a lot of yeah. Dan hits. Uh, and I go back to Pixeline a lot. I just feel like that song's cool. It's just weird. And yeah. it does it for me. I love the opening line. The I'm in a boot squeezes of 20 tracer rounds. Just weird. Yeah. Yeah, I love that song too. That's when she jumps the turnstile. <laughs> it's such it's such intrigue, you know, some of the lyrics. They they draw you in with that opening line and then they just take you on this wild ride, you know, through this character or this this sort of vignette, if you will, you know. Yes. Yes. That it, it t- absolutely. I, I don't think you can uh, you can't take away those lyrics from the music, you know. They're both like right that level with one another in terms of sophistication and interest. Uh, and it's not really about, you know, people are, people always, I see on these groups, like people are trying to dissect what the songs are about. And I think it misses the point. I think it's about the feeling. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. It's pulling you in. It's paint, it's painting with words. It's visuals and creepy, creepy, creepy characters that are in the seedy underbelly. 
I heard somebody describe it. I can't remember who it was, but somebody said euphoric failure. <laughs> I love that. Euphoric failure. Have you seen the Quantum Criminals book? I've seen it. I have not picked it up. I ha- I know very little about it. Have you read it? I got a copy for Christmas this year, and I read it. I was holding off when it came out. I was sort of torn because um, as much as I love to just absorb everything, Steely Dan, um, and I was looking forward to reading the, the, the prose part of it, I was a little bit taken aback by the fact that somebody painted pictures of all these different characters yeah. and scenes like and things. Coops McCann. Yeah, no, because I feel like it was just going to ruin it for me because, you know, listening to them for 40-something years, um, I, I kind of have preconceived notions in my my head of what these mm-hmm. things look like. And like you mm-hmm. said, like the, the, the lyrics and the music, they kind of paint a picture for me. Um, so to see somebody else's interpretation is fine, but I'm just like, I don't know if I agree with any of them. And the paintings are fabulous. Uh, Joan LeMay, who did all the artwork, she, she's a, an amazing painter, like not, not to take anything away from her art. Um, but there are just some representations that I was like, really? <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. It's sort of when your favorite book becomes a movie. Right. And it's never going to be as good as how your your brain has made it for you. Exactly. Uh, so I said, no, oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say uh, one of my favorite books is A Confederacy of Dunces. Yes. And that has a, the history of, you know, they've tried to make that into a movie for decades and decades and it always fails it falls through in, in development um i think they say now that it's cursed but i'm kind of glad i'm like please never make this into a movie it will never be as good as the book in any capacity it it just couldn't be it's such an amazing piece of literature oh i agree and there are some things that shouldn't cross into other sorts of media right and i feel like um a couple examples for me is that they, they tried a couple times to, to make Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy into a, a movie. Failed miserably. One of my favorite mm-hmm. books. Um, on the less cerebral side, um, there's a series of books called the Jack Reacher series. I don't know if you're familiar. I've heard of it. Yeah. Yeah. So great books. Well written. But they're, you know, they're spy, military, police, crime type novels and they're great um i've been reading uh uh, i can't think of the author's name off the top of my head um which is alarming because i just literally heard it yesterday um anyway (laughs) it'll come to me um so i just love those books and you know a a bunch of years ago (laughs) they made one of the books into a movie and in the books they describe jack reacher as being like six foot five 270 pounds uh, like this massive guy with like baseball mitts for hands, and he's just right. like this total badass. And they cast Tom Cruise. <laughs> it, even with elevator shoes, um, gal show reference. Even with elevator <laughs> shoes, um, Tom just didn't do it for me. It literally ruined. So I mean, you know, I watched the two movies that they made, and I just sort of hate watched them. I was like, this sucks. This sucks. You know, the whole way through. So fast forward to, I guess it was a couple of years ago, um, Amazon optioned another one of the books to make a series. And I was like, oh, here we go again. Um, but they cast this guy, um, Alan Richson, and he fits the description like he is Reacher. So, uh, you know, they, they redeemed themselves or the author redeemed himself by, <laughs> by insisting that they get somebody who actually looks like what Reacher should be. But it was the same kind of thing. It was like you have this picture in your head and then this great description of this character and all these novels and like all of a sudden you, you, you go to the movies and you sit down and it's like tom cruise really can <laughs> <laughs> breaker the search for more money <laughs> <laughs> pretty much um well, great. So let's, uh, if you wouldn't mind, let's pivot um, a bit. I loved listening to your first EP and, and some of your other singles that were on Spotify. Um, I have to say that, like, your music, your originals, y- you sound like Southern California. I hear so much of that influence. Um, Beach Boys, Joni, I hear some Tom Petty. I get strong 70s vibes. Mm-hmm. So what's your writing process? Where did some of those songs come from? Um, you know, and, and yeah. I think I have a good sense of your influences, but maybe you can, you know, list some for my sure. six or seven viewers now. <laughs> <laughs> We're growing. We're going to grow you. All right. Um, 
you know, my process is kind of different for each song. I don't have any sort of specific thing of like, this is how I write. But usually I will come up with the music first and then I'll hear a melody in my head and then I'll sort of get a little nugget of something and it's kind of like cracking a code, you know? So it's like, okay, I have this part, but now... Now I'm going to, I have to go, what, what, how do I want to start this? Or how do I want to, where does this want, where does this want to go? And sometimes it's really easy. That's always the best, you know, when it's just like, okay, this is, I have this idea and I'm going to flush it out and I, it, it, it just comes, it just pours out of you. That's very rare, but it's great when it happens, but it's rare, you know, and I have songs that I've been working on for years and I call it snippets disease. Where you'll get like a, you know, you'll get a snippet of something and then you can't crack the code and it just is like, oh, it's, and I, I, I'm trying to get better about finishing it. You know, even if it's not a good song, even if it's not good, it's done. And that's, you know, it's a song. It's, it's, it's complete. So I'm trying to like get out of my head in that way of just like actually finishing the idea, even if it's not perfect, you know, um, but uh, I wrote this song, my, I went to, so I have a nine-year-old now, and, um, we took him to Disneyland. This was maybe seven years ago, six years ago. And we went on Small World and he came home and he was singing, he was singing the Small World song, but he inverted the line. He said, um, after all, it's a small world. After all, it's a small world. And I was like, that's a kind of, I like how you, I like that. And I, so I wrote a song around that inversion so the chorus is after all, it's a small, small world, after all, it's a small, small world. And it's sort of the idea of like, you can't outrun this relationship. Right. You've done all these things, you've gone all these places, but you can't, you can't outrun it. Right. And, and so it hits the chorus is after all, it's a small, small world. So sometimes I'll get ideas of songs just through things that happen. And I'm like, that's a lyric, that's a concept, that's cool. Let's run with that. Um, or if it's a co-write, then it's, that's, a, that's it's whole, you know, that's a whole other animal. You know, somebody will have, bring you a core up. The you know chord progression, and then I'll have been a, a top line idea or something, or vice versa, and it becomes its own alchemy. Um, I've written a lot with my brother. My brother and I were in a band together for a decade. We're in a band called American Bloomers, and he's an incredible songwriter. He's a really one of my my favorite uh, singer songwriters. He's just that good. Um, so he's always been been a pleasure to, to write with. I listened to some of that too. When you're writing with a family member too, where it's like sometimes you'll write with people and you have to, you have to be delicate because you know it's an it's their soul, it's their idea. But like when you're writing with your brother, just like no, that's bad. I <laughs> need <laughs> yeah, but no, I don't like that idea. And the yeah. relationship remains, yeah. You know? <laughs> right, right. That that's yeah. Well, that's I mean, you know, si- siblings is a whole different thing. Um, and I was gonna ask you about that like you know what what was that like is you know does does did he pull the big brother card a lot and say you know we're doing it this way because you know i'm I'm older or did you guys have a better um you know how did you sort of work out that sort of stuff as you were writing together and recording together yeah so he the first the first um entry into recording i think i was 16 or 17 and he wrote these songs and produced a record produced it was like maybe a three or four song ep and uh, we recorded with David Bearwald at his studio in Venice. David was, um, he's an amazing singer-songwriter, and he had this beautiful uh, studio in, in Venice. He wrote, he co-wrote Strong Enough with Cheryl Crow. Oh, wow, okay. He's yeah. an incredible musician. So we recorded it at his studio. And um, it's actually funny because the piano player on that demo, when I was 16 or 17, played piano on the Linger cover that I just did. So it's like kind of this cool full circle yeah. thing, you know. Um, but my brother's always been very, he has a he has a vision, you know. He can hear something and he's good at kind of getting it, parsing things out and, and getting to that thing that he's hearing in his head pretty quickly. Uh, he's, yeah, he's, but he's also diplomatic and very easygoing and he's, he's a good guy. Nice. So you've also had a song featured on a TV show, um, and you had a really cool Christmas song, which I listened to and then realized there was a video for, so I went and watched yeah. that. I was, I was like binging Jane Shelton this morning yeah, before we got yeah. on the podcast. So why don't you tell me about those two and, and how those came about? 
Yeah. So the Christmas song, um, I yeah, I think there everybody cut like I saw uh, you know you, you reach a certain point when uh, as a songwriter where you're like I think I should write a Christmas song. <laughs> <laughs> like I think I'm gonna write a Christmas song. And I was you know there's just thousands of songs about Santa but there's very few about Mrs. Claus and I was like let's give her some representation. You know she she deserves a little credit for her contribution to this whole operation and so i had the idea of like you know this is going to be about mrs claus and she's it's christmas eve and she's done all this work and now she's gets to celebrate so she goes to a bar and it the celebration is about her you know like let's raise a drink to mrs claus and set up a double jack this one's for mrs claus tonight you know and so i had i think I, I think that's how i thought about it is like i wanted it to feel kind of like a spring scene song in a way of like you're at a right. bar live and it's like set up a double jet this one's for mrs claus um and then the video was really awesome my um uh, uh terry hatcher's a, a friend and she she agreed to play mrs claus in the video and a lot of other friends sort of stepped up and helped and we t- took over a bar in atwater village and uh, um matt uh ryan who's an amazing dp he he filmed it and um uh it was just a great it was a really fun project to bring that video to life it's a fun video i i, I enjoyed I it oh. yeah i love the puppets uh, yeah amazing i will link the video and the the show notes for the for this episode too oh, cool. okay yeah. great and then your song that was in a TV show. Oh, yeah. So I've um, had a couple of songs. I've, um, the Marital Bloomer songs were um, in a couple episodes of The Big Bang Theory. Oh, wow. Okay. And um, then uh, the, the, the latest placement was Nancy Drew. And that was a song called Go Quietly that I wrote with Alan White, who he's an amazing songwriter. He He's Morrissey's co writer and he's okay. written i think 60 or 70 songs with morrissey so like all those great morrissey songs like um we hate it when our friends become successful and uh um first of the gang to die you know he's he wrote those songs so um i've known him for many years and we just collaborated and that that luckily got placed in that in in that show which was wonderful yeah that's super cool yeah so next on my list of things to talk about, um, you sent me this fabulous playlist. Um, not only did I love most of the songs on it, but I feel like um, I didn't know some of the others, and I'm a little embarrassed because I think their album cuts, like um, Masoko Tango by The Police, great song, but like, when do you ever intentionally put that song on? Maybe you do, but I don't think I ever have. Um, yeah. You know, it's just like it, it plays if I'm listening to the whole album. Um, and the, the, the standout and, and we message about this and it was awesome was, you know, you said no particular order. Um, but yet you kicked off the playlist with easy lover by Phil Collins and <laughs> Philip Bailey. And that is a kick ass opening track for a playlist. I just realized. Um, and it's an instant put me in a good mood track. It's like brain bleach. Like you listen to that song, you just can't be in a bad mood. You so, can't. Yeah. No. Well, so tell me about some of the songs on the playlist and why you included them maybe, or, um, you know, just what are you listening to right now? Like what are some of the, the tracks that you're playing on repeat? Okay. Well, I will tell you in my house, my son is, uh, obsessed with Hamilton right now. Nice. Hamilton, the musical. And I, um, I ignored it for several years because I was like, there's no way that this is as good as everybody says it is. There's no way. And I kind of just didn't, I don't know, I didn't, I didn't go see it and I didn't listen to it. And then my son, well, my son went through a big Weird Al Yankovic fan, Weird, weird Al Yankovic phase. And Weird Al does this polka medley of Hamilton. And oh, I was wow. Like, it's I haven't. Oh, wow. It's incredible. And so that was the gateway because it was this medley of these Hamilton songs. And then he wanted to listen to the, you know, the original recording. And I was like, all right, let's go for it. And then he's like, he became obsessed with it. So that has been on repeat. Like if the top, my Spotify best of or whatever the Twitter thing they were both listening to was the Hamilton for our podcast recording, which is, by the way, it's every bit as good as everybody says. Oh, it is. A thousand percent. It's incredible. Yeah. 
So that's been, that's a big thing. I didn't put any of that on the playlist, but that's been a big, um, big listen over here. Um, but I think we talked about New York City Serenade, which I put on, on the playlist. Yeah. And that's actually, you know, uh, when I was reporting Bad Sneakers, I was thinking about that song a lot. Just sort of like the emotional, um, that sort of the outro. I kind of wanted the outro of Bad Sneakers to have that same emotional content that New York City Serenade had. And it's a song I go back to over and over again. It's 10 minutes long, which is great. Like, it's an incredible feat to make a piece of music that is 10 minutes long that is not boring. Yes. The opposite of boring. It's completely uh, compelling in every second of it. Um, And I I just, that's a song I never get sick of and never will. Same. I think it's one of my absolute favorite Springsteen songs. You know, it's, it's, that album is, one of his best, I think, especially as, as, as a singer songwriter, I mean, just as a songwriter, even, um, you know, people hate on Bruce and look, I'm from Jersey. I grew up in Jersey. Um, I used to hate on Bruce, <laughs> you know, hometown hero. hometown hero, but you know, like born in the USA and all that stuff. I mean, it was just yeah. like, okay, it, we, it, it was like beaten to death in New Jersey, obviously. Yeah. Right. So by the time, you know, and that was when I was, in my formative music years, I guess. So it wasn't until much later, probably in college, um, there was a really great used um, record store in the town where I went to school. And um, I forgot how I ended up with it, but um, I got a cassette of Darkness on the Edge of Town. Mm-hmm. And I think somebody that I was friends with at school recommended it. And I was like, Springsteen, really? And they're like, just, just listen to it. So I bought it for like $3 in the used bin or something. And I threw it in the tape deck in my car and just, you know, used to just drive around and, and be doing nothing whenever listening to it. And I was just like, wow, I had no idea he had that kind of depth, you know. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, that led me backwards into Wild Innocent and East Street Shuffle and Greetings from Asbury Park. And, and you know, the, the, the golden era, as I, as I think of it, is of, of Bruce. I mean, it was just amazing. Yeah, he's he and in the band. And yeah, they're probably in my, you know. If not my top five, my top 10, for sure. Yeah. Great. And the other standout track, I think, I'm looking around my microphone, um, Say So by Doja Cat. That was sort of like a a, a left field, but, you know, tell me why that made it on on the cut. I love her. She's so great. She's really one of my favorite artists to come out of the past, I guess, what, five years, maybe. Um, I just think she writes really good songs, and they're fun and catchy and hooky, and she can rap really well, and she's... I like. I think she's dope. Yeah, like, me too. I love that song. Me too. Uh, first exposure was you know every TikTok for like six months. Had <laughs> 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 that song as the the music, and my daughter my daughter would show me TikToks, and I'm like, why does everybody have that song? And she's like, it's a great song. And then I was like, okay, so I listened to the whole thing, and I was like, wow, you're right. This is a great song. Great song. Yeah, it's funny how. I've I've tried to get my daughter into stuff and I've made her playlists and I play stuff for her in the car all the time and, and you know give her recommendations but um I think it's it's been both ways since she's been about you know 12 or 13 and and she's really started to get into music on her own um just the amount of things that that she's gotten me into um an artist that that she's played for me and even things that I listened to when they were out you know 10 20 years ago that she's discovered sort of sparks like a reinterest if you will for for that kind of stuff for me too which has been fun that's really fun that's cool that's great that you guys can share that bond yeah it's it's a lot of fun she's she's really into radiohead and she likes smashing pumpkins and you know the other day we were in the car and she was playing a playlist and it was 90 percent like 90s alternative and i was like what you know what year is this did i fall into a time machine like this is great she's are having this renaissance because it was so long ago you know yeah for sure yeah so Um, smashing pumpkins record oh um siamese dream hands down um you know, they were on the verge of breaking up, I think. Um, it was like just the, the most angsty time in the band. Um, and it shows, you know, and, and Billy Corrigan was just working around the clock, doing hundreds of overdubs and playing all the parts and, you know, um, almost Steely Dan level obsession over the, the, the studio process and how things are recorded. 
um, with Butch Vig, by the way, you know, yeah. engineering and producing and the, the guitar sounds on that record and just some of the atmospherics, the playing. Um, Jimmy Chamberlain's one of my favorite drummers. You're in Kyle. Um, yeah, I mean, I just, it's, it's one of my top 10 favorite albums ever. How about you? Yeah. I, I'm going to have to say Melancholy and the Infinite okay. Sadness just because it's a nostalgia thing for me, you know? Um, I, I was maybe 14 or 15 or something when that record came out. And uh, it just kind of brings me to that time immediately, you know? Right. Uh, and just sitting with the liner notes and that double album, and there's just something about that record that I'm going to have to tip it to that one. I, I heartily endorse that. And I think that record got a lot of undeserved shit because it was a double album. Nobody was doing double albums at that point. And I think he wanted to do a triple Billy and <laughs> that everybody was like, you can't like, you, you know, let's, let's just, let's be realistic here. Let's keep it at a double. And I think he finally backed down and, and agreed to it. But I think he had all this music in him that he wanted to get out. And yeah. um, that record just runs the gamut from, you know, screaming heavy metal riffs to just gorgeous strings and pianos, and it's it's unreal. So yeah, I, I I'm with you on that one. I think that's my second favorite. Yeah. Um, there was a time when I would have said Gish um, because mm-hmm. that was my first exposure to the band. Um, it's funny. I have a friend. Um, hi, Amy. If you're ever watching this, um, Amy and I used to just like turn each other on to music. That was our thing. And I remember distinctly the first time I heard the Pumpkins. I was picking her up. We were going somewhere to hang out or go to eat go out to eat or something and she jumped in my car and she popped out whatever tape i had in the tape deck and she put a tape in i said what are you putting in and she goes just listen just just this she is this shit's gonna blow your mind just 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 listen and it was um i am one which is the opening track on gish and i was like holy shit holy shit oh my god like i was just blown away by the music i'm like who is this and she's like some new band called smashing pumpkins i don't know she goes it's really good and i was like yes yeah, it's, it's really good yeah it was it was one of those musical moments you know yeah that you remember for sure are you into Jenny mitchell at all i am um i like blue i like court and spark um i like hegira um hissing of summer lawns um coyote like you know yeah some of the some of the classics. I remember that I had a moment with Blue. The first time I heard Blue, I was at my friend uh, my friend Lori's house, and she had the CD, and we were probably thirteen. And um, and Discman, I think I brought over a Discman to, <laughs> to the sleepover or whatever, and I found that record, and I just was listening to it in the first track, "All I Want," and I the same this kind of the same kind of Steely Dan moment of like, what is? Yes. I've been waiting to hear this my whole life. <laughs> I've been waiting to hear this. Oh. That's, that's still like one of my absolute favorite records. Yeah, love it. Um, I, I'd never really dug into her whole catalog. I think I was more of a hits kind of person, um, but definitely just yeah, you know right. love her voice and and love her her songwriting. Um, yeah. Let me see. So um, on my playlist recently, I'll, I'll give you a few things that I've been listening to. Um, I have been obsessed with the song Angel of the Morning, but not the Juice Newton version, the original okay. by Evie Sands. Um, okay. I, I I listen to almost every genre, like, you know, everything from hip-hop to country to metal to Steely Dan and the Yacht Rock and classic rock and alternative. You, you name it, I, I, I can, you know, get into it. Um, but I think classic country for the last few years and – even some like Americana stuff and, and some of the Southern California country rock um, really has sort of made a reappearance in my, my listening. So um, I heard the Juice Newton version and I didn't know that it was a cover. I never knew that. So I forgot mm. how I stumbled across the original version. I think maybe when I went and searched on Spotify, cause I was going to throw it on my playlist. And I think the other version came up right next to it. And I was like, Oh, they, somebody covered <laughs> angel yeah. of the morning. And I look and at the date, was the original 1967 Evie Sands. Um, and she yeah. wasn't even the first one to have a hit with it. Somebody else, um, somebody merrily, I think was her name, uh, had the first hit version of it on the radio, like the next year or the year after. And then, you know, juice resurrected it and was it 80, 81. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's been in, in rotation. Um, are you familiar with letters to Cleo? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So love them. Always love their stuff. You know, they kind of got buried in that that deluge of of '90s alternative bands. But um, you know, it's it's really hard not to have a crush on Kay Hanley. She's just mm-hmm. awesome. Um, 
and they did it like a reunion ep in 2016 and the single from that ep is called four leaf clover and okay. it's like the perfect three minute pop rock song so again wow. i'll send you a playlist and i'll link all the stuff in the, in the show notes and stuff but you should definitely covered, check it out didn't they cover uh, i want you to want me yes they did <laughs> It's funny. They got a lot of notoriety for their covers. They did that. They did Dangerous Tight by the Cars. And they did another cover that ended up in a movie, I think. So they, they yeah. had that moment of like, you know, 90s uh, pop rock punk band covers, you know, 70s yeah. classic rock kind of stuff. Uh, Sister Havana by Urge Overkill. Okay. I don't know that song. Um, they were... Again, kind of great band out of Chicago. They were, um, I don't want to say lost in the shuffle, but they, they were sort of in the middle of the whole grunge thing. They weren't grunge. Um, they were more just straightforward rock and roll, but such a good song. Um, the, the drums. Did that, did the cover, or it was, it was on the, the Pulp Fiction soundtrack. Didn't they cover Girl, You'll Be a Woman soon, right? Yes, they did. Yeah, that's a great cover. It's a fantastic cover. Um, and that whole album, Saturation, is, is, is great if you haven't heard it. Um, and then Finally, um, a track that my daughter played um, incessantly for a few months and got me hooked on it, Doomsday by Lizzie McAlpine. Okay. Um, I don't know that. Worth checking out. Um, she's a young singer, songwriter, and the song is kind of like a dirge. It's it's just great. Um, really spooky and sad, and um, you know, I'll, I'll let you listen to it. I won't yeah, give you too much great. on it. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a good uh, eclectic mix. <laughs> I think this playlist should be run run the gamut of all different genres. You know, it should. Um, and like you said, yeah, the, the the my favorite song is the one I'm listening to, right? And I think that's what's happening with me lately. Is like I'll just and and having Spotify is is such a good thing and a bad thing. Good thing because everything at your fingertips. Bad thing because everything at your fingertips. It's like yeah. hard to focus and, and listen to something all the way through um, because yeah, you can just jump to anything. Kind of, kind of dead, unfortunately, but. I know. And it's sad because, you know, growing up when we did, it's, it's, you know, the album was the thing. Like you wanted to listen to the whole thing start to finish. And, you know, a lot of artists really put a whole lot of thought and, and effort into sequencing and, you know, making things flow. And you have this whole thematic journey, you know, Absolutely. you don't get that anymore. No, mine is vinyl. I mean, I, and um, that's a whole that's a whole other world. But yeah, most most artists, you know, can't afford to press. Most indie artists can't afford to do a run on vinyl. Right. Um, it's very expensive. and uh, But I think people are still committed to it. And that's a fun thing. You're like, okay, I'm going to put on a side of a record right now, right? You're making a decision. There's a, there's a thing with streaming where you're just like, uh, you know, it's the scroll, right? right? So we're all addicted to that scroll. We're like, okay, what's the next thing? I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. When you have a vinyl record, you're just like, okay, I'm putting on a side of a record and we're going to do this for 20 minutes or whatever it is. And they're committed. And think yeah. there's, something, there's something, you know, important in that. Yeah, you're you're paying attention. You're focused. I mean, even, even if you're not paying rapt attention, you're focusing on the music, right? You're not just skipping around, and you know, it's not just a background kind of thing. So, yeah, or you don't have that desire of the scroll. You don't have the the finger thing where you're just right. like on the screen in here. You know, what else is out there? What else is in the universe? <laughs> like you've made a decision, right? You've made a decision, and yeah. conscious listening, yeah. Yeah, conscious listening like that. Great. Well, Jane, this has been great. I mean, I don't know if you have anything else you wanted to cover or anything you wanted to plug before we wrap it up. I think so. Um, I think everybody should go check out your your meme page, <laughs> the, the Dan. That's how we got to know each other. It's making Steely Dan memes. <laughs> I look forward to seeing what the next one you have up your sleeve. I'm sure it's going to be good. Well, thank you. Thank, thank you for the, the, the endorsement and, and the love. Um, the next one is actually, I made one a couple of days ago and I was like debating whether I should post it or not, but I think I'm going to. So it's going to be a pretzel. It's going to be a pretzel logic reference. I can't wait. <laughs> if I have any ideas, I'm going to send you my ideas. Please, so please do. I'm all the time. Yeah. Well, listen, it's been really great having you on the podcast. Love talking to you. Absolutely. Um, and hopefully you'll come back and visit us again when we have nine or 10 followers. <laughs> Will do. Great. Thanks a lot. Okay. Bye. All right. Bye. 
If you've made it this far, thanks for listening. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Aural Mess. The video version, along with a playlist for each episode, is available on YouTube, and you can visit our website at auralmess.com. Until next time, this is Chad signing off.